Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Hey, good morning. Evan, would you mind grabbing those lights real quick for me? Thank you, brother. I'm going to see these beautiful half-faces. Somebody's awake, thanks. It helps. It helps when you laugh sometimes when the preacher tries to make a joke. Uh, anyway, we'll get going anyway. Genesis, we've been in this, the, this book of the Bible for at least, uh, I don't know, close to 25 weeks now. We've been journeying through it really verse by verse looking at the themes. And if you've been with us, this story sounds familiar, doesn't it? This sounds very familiar because almost the same thing happened in Genesis chapter 12. And the funny thing is, is that uh, there's a lot of commentators that think that this is in the Bible by error, 
because it happens again and like it doesn't seem like Abraham really learned his lesson. But if you're in here and you're a believer, you, you know this belongs in the Bible because things like this happen in our lives all the time, right? The same things kind of keep on happening. As an early believer, I think I developed this idea uh, of what it looked like to be a Christian. It involved strength to resist temptation, you know, to learn from your mistakes, to, to be better, to pick yourself up from your bootstraps and to learn those lessons. It was a, it was a Philippians 4.13 kind of walk with God. You know what Philippians 4.13 says? It's what every athlete has tattooed on their arm. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's actually an amazing, an amazing promise. It, it led a group of uh, evangelists uh, to, to form a ministry. And I had a friend in college who was a part of this group. And they would go around the world and they would do these amazing feats of strength in the name of Jesus in Philippians 4.13. And they were called the power team. Some of you know, yeah, if you look at this picture, this is the power team. I think this was in the early 90s. They got the Bible in hand, the sword ready to conquer things for Jesus. If you look really closely on the far left, you can see Pastor Brandon, actually. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, I think this is an image. Not, I mean, if you came to faith through the power team, praise God. But I think this is an image of a lot of times what we think the Christian life needs to look like. That we muscle up with God's word and we just overcome the devil. That's just what we do. Um, and, and, and with that in mind, we think that growth in the Christian faith kind of looks like this chart right here. This trajectory, spiritual growth. This is what we think Christian growth looks like. Each and every one of us, this is the expectation. I learn from my mistakes, I keep climbing, I keep growing, I go get mine, right? The problem is, is that godly strength is different than worldly strength, amen? When you read the context of the passage of Philippians chapter four, verse 13, you realize that the strength that Paul has acquired is a strength to learn how to be weak. It's a strength to learn how to be content in all circumstances, no matter where God takes him. This is where it takes faith, according to the Apostle Paul. And he would go on to write this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he experienced the moment of weakness in his life, a thorn in his flesh that he pleaded for God to remove three times, and he had all these experiences, and the Lord speaks to him and says this, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is actually made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, he responds to the Lord, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, here's his word, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. So what this means for us is that the equation for experiencing God's strength in our lives is giving to him our weaknesses. If we are honest, we feel a little bit more like this guy, which is a picture of me in middle school right here. That's the way we feel, right? We feel weak when we think about our walk with God. And the reality is, is that our journey toward holiness 
and faithfulness looks a little bit more like this, doesn't it? This is what spiritual growth really looks like. And if you don't believe that this is what spiritual growth really looks like by grace, then you'll spend your entire life being disappointed at God's work in your life. And this is why when we, when we look at this passage today, it's so important to understand this because it's, only, it's the only way that a life of grace through faith will be any comfort to you. If not, we'll be constantly disappointed with a life that doesn't depend on grace. You'll be constantly disappointed with God's plan to bring you completion. Because you know what? Grace seems like cheating. Can you say that with me? Grace seems like, and that's a problem to us, isn't it? And so what we do is we spend our lives trying to minimize the fact that we desperately need God's grace in our life to complete us and to carry us on uh, to eternity. So if someone were to, to take a look at the tape of your life, would they hear you boasting in your weaknesses or hiding from them? Would they see a needy soul desperate for grace or a proud soul that thinks that grace is cheating? Because the proud look at Genesis chapter 20 and they wonder why it's here. But the weak read Genesis 20 and they feel a familiar warmth, don't we? We feel a warmth in it. So here's our big idea for where we're going today. Only grace can outlast our sinful nature. So here's where I'm going in Genesis chapter 20 today. We're gonna look at the enduring grace given to Abraham, we're gonna look at the surprising grace given to Abimelech, and we're gonna look at the possible grace given to the world. So let's dig into that first point here, enduring grace. Let me remind you of the first two verses that are jam-packed with lots of knowledge for us here in Genesis chapter 20. It says this, from there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. Like here's the deal, we're not real sure why Abraham picked up stakes and left, okay? We're just not, but he did. And, uh, and, he's, and he sojourned uh, in, in Gerar, and this, this region is kind of on the outskirts of Egypt. So he's kind of heading in that direction. And Abraham says to his wife this old promise, this old pact that they made. Uh, she is my sister, said of his wife, rather. And Abimelech, which Abimelech is a title, kind of like the Pharaoh. It's not necessarily a personal name, which means father of a king or father king. Uh, and, uh, and sure enough, here's what, here's what Abimelech does. He sent and took Sarah. So a lot's happening here. And, um, and, and so as, as he's going, this, this land of Gerar is really where, uh, the, the, where, where the land of the Philistines will be, right? Where David and Goliath, the Philistine. And so, um, and so that's kind of the region that they're in. And this crazy familiar thing happens, right? He goes back to his old deceitful way of living once again. Now, the exact same happened between 25 and 30 years ago um, when Abraham and Sarah, it was Abram and Sarai at the time, found themselves in Egypt. And they got to Egypt because they were in the promised land and there was a famine and they ran down to Egypt. And so they just kind of go back into the old way of living, this vow that Abraham had made with Sarah and this deal that she kind of clung to as well and listened to it and went along with it. And the deal was this, when we go into these cities, because you're a 90-year-old knockout, here's what we gotta tell them. Apparently she was, all these kings want her, she's 90. And we gotta tell them this, we gotta tell them that you're my sister, because if not, they're gonna kill me to get you. And so they go along with it, and there's a lot at stake in this, as we're gonna see. 
But the, the, the bottom line for Abraham is this, is that it's a, it's a version of the truth that protects Abraham, but not one that's completely faithful to truth, right? This isn't a spontaneous, whoops, it came out of nowhere. This wasn't a slip up for Abraham. This is a premeditated thought that he had to sin against the Most High God and to walk faithlessly. This was a, a way of living, a coping mechanism for fear in Abraham's life that continues to pop back up from time and time again. And get this, the same exact thing will happen in his son Isaac's life in Genesis chapter 26. We'll get there again and we'll think, here we are again. Ryan, can you preach a different sermon, right? That's what you're gonna say when we get there. And I'm gonna say, well, we keep committing the same sins, so we're gonna keep preaching the sermons that, that, that pop up in the Bible for us. And so, and so all of this happens and, and, and the, kind of the, the way that this would happen is that a king would take a wife uh, and, and there would be a, a period of waiting for three to four months to make sure she's not pregnant. Well, we know that Sarah's actually pregnant, but apparently she's not showing at this point. Um, and so he, he sure enough goes through with what Abraham thinks that he's going to do and takes his wife. Um, so let's stop right here for a second. I read this and I'm like, this is unbelievable. I can't believe he does the same thing over and over again. Hasn't he learned anything in his 30 years of seeing God faithfully provide for him day in and day out? I mean, he's got 30 more years of wisdom and he's still doing the same old stuff. And Sarah's, you know, she's pregnant and the fulfillment of the promise is like, it's like, it's like dilated, right? I mean, it is almost here, and he can't hang on? This shows us how powerful your flesh is. And you know that your flesh is powerful because you, too, get caught up in the same old sins, the same old sins that you've spent your life trying to avoid, you, that you find them on your doorstep once again. You see... Maturity doesn't always mean that we outgrow sinful tendencies. I don't think that's the best metric. I think maturity means that we receive grace more quickly than we did last time. That we receive what God has given to us in Jesus more quickly instead of stiff-arming it and being disappointed with grace because we think we're cheating by living in the way that God designed us to find life. This is, do you have any 30-year-old sins in your life that keep popping back up? Some of you aren't 30 yet, but you've got maybe 25-year-old sins or 23-year-old sins that keep popping back up. Of course you do. This is an invitation for us today to consider those things, to consider, uh, to consider the fact that it might be more costly for us to carry around those sins than to confess them. Have you ever considered that fact today? Because some of us have secrets, I, I, all of us have secrets that we probably want to take to the grave with us. And the scriptures tell us that they will burden us and shame us and guilt us into a life that is far from God's design from us. See, your sin isn't the problem. What you do with your sin is the problem. That's, that's the truth that the scriptures show us about grace. And this is where the strong man, you know, the power team, Pastor Brandon, uh, forgets and hides his struggles and the weak man feels the warmth of God's grace when you think about those 30-year-old sins. So, you know, that's the way that life plays out when our flesh is in the driver's seat, is we just keep muscling along and we just keep hiding and stuffing things down. And it's a slow, methodical life of bondage. 
Because you've got to just keep building on the lie over and over again. And, and, this, and here's, the, here's the beautiful thing, is that God loves you too much to let you do that. And so he will destroy you to help you receive grace. That's what he'll do. It's the kindest thing. It's what we see God do in Abraham's life. The, the most important words in this passage, all of Genesis 20, I think are ver- the first two words of Genesis chapter 20, verse 3. But God. But God. This is the difference in life and death for the church. I was running from the truth, but God. I was lost and in despair, but God. I had a way to ease the pain, but God. You see, we've, we've got our own plans that rely on our own sinful nature, but God has much different plans for us. The Apostle Paul will write about this in Ephesians chapter 2. And the but God of Ephesians 2 is the transition point for the life of faith. Listen to it. Paul's writing to this Gentile church in Ephesus, and he says, And you just like those Philistines, just like Abraham, that pagan guy from the land of Ur, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this either is you or was you, church, This is everybody, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were living deceitfully with foreign kings, Abraham, made us alive together with Christ. Who's the one doing the work here? God, he's the one making us alive, not our power team strength to muscle through the flesh of our lives. He says, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You see, grace is only immeasurably rich when you need it and you treasure it with all that you are. Not when you feel like it's cheating, church. Grace will never be immeasurably rich to you. It'll never be something you treasure unless you understand that it is the whole way that you were intended to live. It's the only way we will treasure grace. It's the only way that we'll find hope and life in the midst of our despair. And he goes on to say this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's not by your ability to manipulate the king of Gerar, Abimelech. It's not by your ability to overcome your flesh. It's not by any of your works so that no one will boast. Go back to what Paul said. What did he say? We're to boast in what? Weakness. Because when we boast in weakness, what are we declaring? That grace is stronger than our weakness, right? So it's all about what your boast is. So Jesus isn't surprised by our old ways. 
This is why grace isn't about cleaning up our lives, but it's about declaring that apart from him, we are dead, lifeless beings. And what can dead people do? What can they do? Nothing, nothing. Do you really believe that? That dead people can do nothing? If we believe that dead people can do nothing, when we're around unbelieving or not yet believing people, you know what our expectations of their morality should be? That's exactly right. Our expectations should should follow what our doctrine, what our theology states about what it means to be dead apart from God. The ways of self-help and self-advancement are a dead end. It doesn't matter if you're 10 or if you're 100. As long as we're alive on this earth, our flesh will continue to try and resurrect itself and your weakness and confession of that weakness in your sin is the only thing that can put it back in the grave. And Christ raises and he lives this risen life over us so that we can rise from that as well. So let's look at how, how God uses a Philistine king to sanctify Abraham and for Abraham to show this guy a measure of grace as well. Because what we see is that God's orchestrating this entire plan. He knows Abraham's tendencies. He's not surprised. And so his grace preserves everyone in this instance. Let's start in verse three here. But God, who'd he come to? He came to Abraham, his beloved child in the faith. No, Abraham's living in disobedience. So where does God go? To Abimelech to speak to Abraham. Listen to this, this is crazy. He comes to him in a dream by night and he says to him, behold, you're a dead man. So this is to Abimelech. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. He's got, his mind has to be blown at this point, right? Like, what have I done? Like, I didn't do anything wrong, God. Like, I don't even follow you, but I'm, I'm literally innocent here. And what we see here <clears throat> is that God's promise is important for protecting, but also we see something about marriage here and the sanctity of marriage as a vehicle to declare the grace of God and our relationship to God. It's a mirror of that, as Paul would write in Ephesians 5. So th- this marriage is important to God, and your marriage is important to God because it's a covenant before God, and marriage ushers grace into the world. Our marriage with Christ, our marriage to one another, it is a conduit of grace to the world. So he goes, verse 4, now Abimelech, he hadn't approached her yet, he hadn't been with her, he hadn't, he hadn't done any of that. And so, uh, so he said to the Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to himself, she's my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, Abimelech says, and in the innocent of my, innocence of my hands, I've done this. I wasn't trying to sin. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me, O pagan king Abimelech. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. It shows us how grace, that line right there, he will pray for you, and you shall live. Grace will come to Abraham through Abimelech, and it will flow through Abraham to Abimelech. This is how grace functions And this is why we are not Lord of our own sanctification, because he's writing a much bigger story than the one of our upward trajectory of self-help and getting better. 
See, what we see here, oh, he, he goes on to say this. You'll return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he'll pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die. You and all who are yours. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah is about to rain down on this place if you don't listen to me. Now, this comes on the heels of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the warning that God gives to the men and people of Sodom? What do they do when they hear the warning? They laugh, right? They laugh at it. Abimelech, this pagan king, he listens. There's a certain morality and fear of God that he has. God speaks to Abraham through Abimelech, and God tells Abimelech that he's about to do this terrible thing. And even as an unbeliever, he feels this kind of godly sorrow. And God is showing this unbelieving man grace. He's showing where the integrity of his heart came from. Where did it come from, church? God. Abimelech thought he was the one restraining sin, and all along, God was pulling the strings, right? It's the same thing in your life. It's God who restrains us from sin. It's God who doesn't let this earth and the worldly ways of our flesh absolutely and totally destroy everyone and everything. It is God. There is far more grace in the world than we would dare to ever see or imagine. You see, because here's the thing. There are what we'd call sins of intent, right? We're familiar with these, sins of intent. Sins of intent are sins that we premeditate and we, we, uh, we kind of figure out and we do them. This is what Abraham and Sarah are doing. It is a sin of intent here. It's what David and Bathsheba will do later in the scriptures, right? It's what you maybe did last night or maybe this morning or this week. Premeditated thoughts of sin where in that moment we thought that what our desires were would serve us better than God's desires. Sins of intent. But then there are also sins of ignorance. And the book of Numbers even, even indicates this, right? In, in Numbers 15, you can read uh, in the scriptures about even making sacrifices for unintentional sins. It's why in our legal system, we have provision for, for sins of ignorance, right? That's why there's a difference between manslaughter and first-degree murder, right? There, there's a difference there. There's a difference in our sinful nature. But when we don't think that we can have sins that are of ignorance or unintentional sins, we think far too highly of our flesh, church. We think that we are far more capable of righteousness than we actually are. Now, you know, Abimelech was following his own moral code of ethics, right? He was living by the law, man. He was doing it right. And he's trusting it to protect him for his life. But he underestimates his own depravity, doesn't he? You see, our own code of moral ethics will prove to fail us too if we trust it. If we think that the, the structures and systems that we can set up or the, the ways of doing right by other people will save us, we are walking down a dead-end road. It doesn't matter what the world says, how great you are, how much money you give away, how kind you are to other people. They are all a dead-end road because we think far too highly of our own morality. And God is the one that sets the standard, isn't he? None of us is completely righteous without Jesus. That's the, the bottom line of truth. So if you need Jesus just a little bit, what that means is, is that you're trusting your own moral and ethical ability to, to earn eternity. If you need Jesus a lot, and it feels like cheating, 
and you trust your own ability to be righteous a little, you're in a far better place. And, and the thing is, is that as grace grows in our lives, you know what happens? It's this strange thing. It feels like cheating, but obedience grows. That's how the Christian life works. It's all over the place. But it feels like cheating, but as you trust Jesus more, his Holy Spirit actually works more of a joy for God's word, which leads to a transformation by the Holy Spirit as he conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus, the only one that ever walked righteously. That's how the Christian life works. That's why Genesis 20 doesn't make much sense to us when we're walking in the power of our flesh. So God stops Abimelech in his tracks and he says, hey, if you touch her, I'm not only going to ruin your life, I'm going to ruin your entire nation. So verse 8 here says this, Abimelech rose early in the morning. He called all of his servants and told them all these things. Far different than what happened in Gomorrah, right? They laugh it off. The angels drag Lot and his family out of the city. This king listens. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us, man? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done, Abraham, child of the Most High God. And Abimelech said to Abram, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I, I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my knockout wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, so he kind of gets off on the self-justification thing here. You never do that, though, right? You never. You're laughing because you, you do it. That's good. I like that. Uh, I, but when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, save me. He is my brother. So we notice that God speaks to Abimelech because Abraham isn't really listening, most likely, Right? And there's a certain grace that comes to Abimelech in this moment. Abraham, I think Abraham is kind of trying to, in a sort of kind of way, confess his sin here, right? Because he's kind of caught. It's kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden where they're like, you know, he made me do it. No, she made me do it. And it's like, somehow it's good enough for God. He takes it, right? Sometimes we confess kind of half-heartedly too because we, we see God meet Abraham again, right? This isn't the end of the journey for Abraham. That's the way we view the Christian life. Whenever, if I did that, oh, it'd be over. It'd be over, right? That's not how God works, church. You see, what happens here is we see two different kinds of grace that are shown here. Common grace and special grace. We've talked about this from time to time, but common grace in the Bible, you know, we, we see this evidence of it all around. Romans 1 shows us that all experiences of God's, uh, all, that all that we experience uh, in the world is really a reality of God's grace because he preserves our lives by causing the world to still function instead of absolute depravity overcoming us all. You see, we, we look at last year and we think, oh gosh, it was awful. 2021 got rocky, it's maybe getting a little better, I don't know, you know, maybe not. We look at this and we think it's all getting worse. It's never going to get better. And I don't really know how it'll go, but I know this, it could be a lot worse. It could be Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment against them could be the Sodom of the United States in a heartbeat church. But it's not, because God's gracious. 
There's way more grace in the world than you could ever imagine. What if the church began to call out some of that grace, to verbalize it? Heck, to even post it on social media instead of all the sin. All the ways that God is gracious. What if you sat around the lunch table or the dinner table this afternoon and you said, let's just try to see God's grace. Where's it at? Let's make a list. Let's see if we can list all the grace that we get to experience because God is gracious. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There is common grace in the world. But even for you, church, if you're in Christ, there's this special grace, this covenantal electing grace, the grace that, 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 that made Abraham God's son as a sinner. This is the grace that makes us sons and daughters through the work of Christ, through the work of the better Abraham, Jesus Christ himself. It's the reason that God can still relate to Abraham in his sin because he's shown him special grace, redemptive grace, grace that saves. And here's what happens when you have a relationship to God because of this special grace. You are able to point to all of the common grace in the world and have hope. And you're able to point to the special grace and have hope. And you're able to point others to that grace as well. And when they see it, they see God. They see God at work in the world. They see it through creation. They see it through the fruit of the Spirit bearing out in your life because there's way more grace in the world than you could dare to imagine. And I dare you to try to count it all. We also see this last point here, that there's possible grace for the world. There's possible grace for the world. Let me, let me close out Genesis 20 here. It says this, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. He gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Take whatever piece of land you want. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. I don't know how much money that is. It seems like a lot, though. And uh, it's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated, Sarah. The promise is not voided. Because you remember that promise, right? The promise of a descendant? What's going to happen in the next chapter? Yeah, it was almost all jeopardized right here. Just for a moment of safety. Then Abraham prayed to God, just like God had prophesied to Abimelech, or spoke to him in a dream that Abraham would do. We don't, we don't know that, we don't know how that prompting happened. God hasn't talked to Abraham in Genesis 20 that we know of, but somehow the Spirit has prompted him to pray for Abimelech. And when he prays, what do you think happens? God heals. God heals Abimelech, this pagan nation, this pagan king. And he heals his wife, his female slaves, so that they can, they can bear children. For the Lord had closed all of the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's life. God blesses all the world with this common grace. Abimelech, I mean, when you look at him, you're like, dude, he's a better dude than most Christians I know, right? If you're honest, right? I, I'm looking at him like, yeah, he totally is. Like, there's no way I would do that. 
He's receiving the punishment for Abraham's sin in this case. And the scripture says that because of Abimelech unknowingly sins, he was going to take uh, you know, Sarah as, as his wife and didn't even know that she was married. So, so if grace isn't extended in this moment, this plays out with just a, a barrage of judgment and hatred and nation against nation. But I think Genesis 20 is good for us because it shows us the truth about who we are. Yeah, I've got those 30-year-old sins too that I want to carry to the grave, right? I've got those. And number two, it shows us how grace comes to the world. It's not through strength, it's through weakness. Now, if you were to read Hebrews chapter 11, Hall of Faith, right? Abraham, father of the faith, sing the song, you know, Father Abraham, right? To sing that without knowing his story, you would think that Abraham was the captain of the power team, wouldn't you? That's what you would think about his life. It's not who Abraham is. It's not who Abraham was. Grace comes to the world through weakness. Grace comes to the world through weakness. So are you aware of the weaknesses that you have and what do you do with them? I was just thinking about this week, yesterday actually. I had two like super humiliating things happen yesterday that like, I, guys, I yelled at a, at a flag football referee. I told him his call was wrong. Like I'm on the field yelling at him and I, he's not here this morning, I don't think. But, and I just had to get, after the game, I was like, God, what have I done? Yesterday afternoon, I'm out in the front yard with my neighbor. I have to apologize because I'm making too big of a deal out of something that's it's not worth risking a relationship that could lead to gospel transformation, right? Here's how I think that prayer with Abraham sounded. Probably didn't sound like, you know, God just heal him, you know, because, because you love me. I think it sounded more like this. Father, I know none of us deserve you. Not Abimelech, and certainly not I. You know, I was just like Abimelech, Father, until you called my name, until you called me out of that pagan land. I mean, look at what I've fallen into yet again. Father, please, by your mercy and grace, spare Abimelech's family, just like you've spared mine. Don't let my sin devastate his life. Let him, like me, live to see your blessings. And Father, by grace, maybe he'll see you as king the, the same way that I do. Maybe he'll see you as father the same way I do. And he closes the prayer. I don't know, I'm speculating here. But I feel like it was more gentle and humble than maybe we would imagine. Because that's what grace does to our hearts. As you read on in Genesis 21, Abraham and Abimelech will enjoy, they'll many, enjoy many years together by grace. They'll make a pact, a covenant together. And years later, this unbelief against Abimelech will be revived by Isaac. And the cycle will continue. Because only grace can outlast your sinful nature and mine. Years later, Abraham and Isaac would have a descendant that would be faithful. He'd be the only honest person He'd overcome the flesh, but he'd be brought up on false charges, things that he didn't do. And on the night of his betrayal, you know what he'll do? He'll pray for his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But not only that, he'll take their punishment. He'll, he'll pray for them, and then he'll take their punishment. And he'll open up a way for salvation by grace to all who would believe. And then this truth from 2 Timothy 2 Verse 13 will stand to be true for all who find life in his name, and it's this. 
if we are faithless, if we're just like Abraham in the land of Gerar, sinning against Abimelech and not walking by faith, he remains faithful. And he proves that he remains faithful because he endures the cross, all of the punishment against our sin, and makes a way for life through grace. And the reason is because you and I are hidden with Christ in God, as Colossians 3.3 says, and he can't deny himself. And so I want you to take that truth to the grave, Christian, because it's then and only then will your weakness be a means of grace in your life. Let's pray for that together. Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you that um, by grace we can look at Genesis 20 and find comfort instead of judgment because of what Christ has done. Because when we are faithless, Jesus remained faithful and he continues to remain faithful because he can't deny himself and we're hidden in him, Lord. And so, Father, this morning, we come to you. We come to this table and we confess all of the ways that we are faithless. All of the ways that we try to manage, self-medicate, and self-protect ourselves from the consequences of our sin. We confess that all of our moral and ethical plans and standards, they're not even close to what holiness and righteousness is because there's none like you. And so, Father, we confess all of our judgment against those that don't live up to our standards because none of us do. And Father, we ask you for the special grace of God to renew our spirits again, that we may boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses because Christ is our strength.